everyone, Steve Donahue of the Legacy Podcast. This episode is number 267, and this is going to be a recording of a message that I delivered when I was pastor of Mount Tabor Baptist Church early in, in the year, and this is part three of prayer. You probably would agree with me that very often how you say something has as much impact or even sometimes more impact than what you say. Uh, in fact, we have come across this many times in our home, but there is a voice quality, there is pitch, there is rate, there is rhythm, intonation, posture, clothing, gestures, eye contact, all of those things have more to do with communication than the actual words that you say. I'm just going to give you a little bit of insight into our home and sometimes what happens in our home. One of the favorite words I think that is used in our home is whatever. Now, that can be used in a good way and it can be used in a bad way depending on how it's used. And I got in trouble for using it this last week because it was taken in a wrong way, maybe because I said it with the wrong kind of intonation or something like that and so very often what is not said by the words but what is communicated by the nonverbal communicates a lot and so think about this for a second you can say whatever like this whatever and that means like whatever I don't care it doesn't really matter to me right you can also say whatever that's how one of my sons says it a lot. And that means, just get off my back, okay? Right? Then you can also say, whatever. And that means, whatever's good for you, it's fine with me. Right? And so you can say the same thing, but mean something different. Now, I'm not going to tell you exactly the way I said it and how it was interpreted, because that might cause a little bit of aggravation. And uh, so I will avoid that that pain for you. Uh, But let's just say that um, sometimes what we say can be interpreted incorrectly because of the way in which we say it. And so I could give you, you know, we've been looking at prayer uh, the last couple of weeks and we've been looking at um, some what about prayer, who we're supposed to pray for and, and the contents of prayer and, you know, different topics like that and. This week, what we're going to do is we're going to look at how to pray, but we're not just going to look at the words that we are to pray. We have models of that, and we may do that 
uh, in a future uh, message. But this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at the how of prayer as it relates to our attitude, as it relates to our heart and, and how our heart is responding to the words that we're saying. In other words, we're going to look at the nonverbal of prayer and how we are to pray in a nonverbal way. And so uh, the first thing that we must understand, and there are a lot of different examples that we could look to in scriptures for all of these. I'm going to just point out a few of the ones that I think are most characteristic. Uh, but the first way in which that we are to pray is we are to pray honorably. We are to pray honorably. In Psalm 33, verse 8, it says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Now, when I was growing up, we used the word awesome all the time. I think it's kind of gone out of favor now. Now they use other words. I'm not sure exactly which they are that would carry the same idea. But when I was growing up and, you know, we would, we would do a jump on the ski slope. And, oh, that was an awesome jump. You know, or you take a shot around the half court line, make it. Oh, that was an awesome shot. Everything was awesome, right? You watch a good movie and it was an awesome movie. And, and as a result of that, the word actually got dumbed down. Didn't it? That there are really only a few things that are truly awesome. And you know what one of those things is? It's God. God is truly awesome. And when we approach Him in prayer, we must approach Him with the understanding that we are approaching the awesome God. He is high and lifted up. He is magnified above all things. It's not as though we just approach Him as our buddy-buddy. We are actually approaching the one who, by the very words of his mouth, brought into existence all that there is, all that is. That, that's awesome. That is amazing. And so we are to approach him honorably. Psalm 95 verse 6 says, Oh, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And so there again, you see this nonverbal, and we see some postures that are associated with prayer, bowing down, kneeling before the Lord, our maker, in, a, in an effort and in, as, a, as an attitude of, of honor before him. Just as someone might come uh, before a, a king in the days of old, and they would bow before the king as, as a sign of honor. So it is when we are... To come before the Lord, we are to come before Him honorably with hearts of honor. Psalm 145, verse 5 says, I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. I like the wording there, the glorious splendor of your majesty. You see, that's how we're supposed to approach the Lord. Understanding that He is worthy of honor because of His glorious splendor. And his majesty. You see, we don't just approach the Lord as our friend. Now, is he our friend? Absolutely. And we looked at in one of the messages earlier, we looked at how he is he is uh, our Abba father and that we can call out to him like in never times be past where we were able to to actually call out to him as our daddy, as our father. And we have that kind of intimacy with him as his children, which is a great thing. And yet. On the other hand, we cannot abuse it to the point that we actually come before Him without any understanding of the honor that is due to Him. 
and to him alone. And so we must approach him with honor. I think that there is a there is a trend in our culture of a disrespect to those who deserve honor. I think it first of all occurs in the home where children show very little respect to their parents. Did you know it used to be I've tried to hint at this in my home, but of course it doesn't get very far. Did you know that it used to be back in the quote, good old days, <laughs> you can choose whenever that was, but uh, in the good old days, it used to be that the parents would eat first. And then the children would eat when the parents were through. Wouldn't that be great? Mom and dad would actually get some time together as to eat. You know what happens in our home? <laughs> They all eat together, no manners, you know, and it's just all, you know. And, th- and there's this disrespect that just is natural part of our, our development as a culture, if we want to call it a development. We see that not only there, but we also see it in the workplace. And, and there, are, there are occasions where, where people will refer to their bosses or they'll refer to someone in authority in the workplace with terms and with descriptions that th- would never be considered legitimate in honor. And as a result of that, this has then also uh, transferred over into the church world and into our relationship with God. And there is a way in which we as even believers approach God in ways that are disrespectful and dishonoring before him. And so I want to just look at a couple of couple of ways as we look at the contrast between honor and dishonor. There is honorable language and there's dishonorable language. On, on the one hand, we have slang. And I don't believe it is appropriate for us to approach God in prayer with slang. Now, I have a friend of mine that, you know, he, he's a pretty cool dude. And he can, uh, he, he'll write to me on text or email or whatever. Okay, dude, praying for you, right? That's not the kind of language necessarily that we are to approach God in prayer with. It's fine between friends. It's fine between brothers. It's fine between companions, but not necessarily between the Lord. On the other hand, there are some who grew up using the King James language, and they actually prayer use they, they pray using Elizabethan English. And dear God, Thou art thankful for Thee. And you know, I mean, I can't pray like that. I didn't grow up in that kind of language. I didn't grow up in the King James Bible. And so that's not necessarily the direction we need to go, although there's great beauty in that. That is not necessarily what we need. What do we need? We need somewhere in between. Well, we're actually speaking with our own language, but in a way that is honorable to the Lord. And then, of course, there's a posture of honor. Bowing of heads, folding of hands, prostrating ourselves before the Lord. Why is it tradition that when we pray, we bow our heads? It's a sign of honor. It's a sign of respect. And so it should be. And then there is the attitude of honor. And no one can really see into our hearts. No one can know whether we have an attitude of honor when we are in prayer. But God does. And we should check our hearts accordingly. And so we must approach the Lord in our prayer honorably. But secondly, we must approach him humbly. In our prayer, we must pray humbly. This involves really a couple of characteristics. First of all, 
it, it, it has the understanding of our unworthiness in being able to come before him. I'm reminded when, uh, when Abram of old, Abraham, before he became Abraham, was asking, uh, petitioning God in behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't know if you recall this back in Genesis 18, before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Abram actually came before Lord, came before God and petitioned him and asked, is it possible for you to save Sodom and Gomorrah if you just found a hundred in there that were righteous? And God says, if I found just a hundred righteous, I would save them. And he comes back and he says, Lord, forbid it me that I would ask of you again. But if it were possible, if there was only 80 there, would you save them? And he does this over and over and over again. And with each time as he approaches the Lord, you can see his language becoming even more and more humble that he would have the ability to ask one more time for the favor of God. And so in chapter 18, verse 27, then Abraham answered and said, Indeed, now I who am but dust and ashes have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord this one last time. You see his his attitude of humbleness before the Lord. He realizes that he should not be worthy to ask anything of the Lord. And Jacob also, in considering what God had done, recognized his own Unworthiness In Genesis 32, verse 10, he says, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. He understood his unworthiness before the Lord. Perhaps the best example of this, though, is the prodigal son. You know the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, where the, the son uh, decides that he's had enough of his father and his home and and uh, all that he has there. And so he, he asks his father to give him his inheritance early. Which is basically uh, saying that he wanted his father dead. So he takes his father's inheritance and he goes. And it says he goes to a far country and he squanders all of his money. And it says on prodigal living. And then it says this in verse 17 of chapter 15. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. You see his humility? We should approach God in prayer with humbleness, the real understanding of our unworthiness to come before him. But it also involves a brokenness of spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Psalm 51, verse 17 says this, A sacrifice of God or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. These are the words of David's after, of course, he was convicted with his sin regarding Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. And he comes with a brokenness of heart, a humbleness, understanding that he was not worthy to come before the Lord. And then, of course, we are reminded of Luke chapter 18, where we have uh, two people uh, coming to prayer in a parable that Jesus says. And in verse nine, he says, also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. He said two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. By the way, that's the opposite attitude that we should have when we come before the Lord. But listen to what he says then. It says, And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat on his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbled himself will be exalted. You see, when we come before the Lord in prayer, we must come humbly before Him, begging of Him for His mercy. And so we should have a posture of humility and honor, gesture of humility and brokenness, words of humility that we speak. Notice that this humbleness is necessary in order to be justified before God, just as the sinner beat upon his breast. After all, the scriptures do say that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up. Sometimes we approach God as though he owes us something. Did you know the only thing that God owes us is eternal damnation forever? Anything better than that, we should be thankful for. And yet he's given us so much more, hasn't he? And so we should approach him with humbleness and with thankfulness. That brings us to the next thing. And that is we are also to uh, come before him with grateful hearts or gratefully. Philippians chapter 4 verse 6 says, Be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, this is a natural outflow from us coming before him humbly and unworthily. If we know that we are unworthy before him and when we come before him with humbleness and with honor, it is only natural for us then to want to give him thanksgiving and to praise him and to uh, credit him and to be grateful to him for all that he has done for us. We are to be grateful for all that he has done for us and all that he has promised to us. We are to be grateful for who he is. I am reminded of Luke chapter 17, <clears throat> verses 11 through 19, which is another incident that occurred in Jesus' life. And it says this, Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when they saw them, he said to them, go, show yourself to the priests. And so it was as they went that they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed? But where are the other nine? Were there not any who found who returned to give thanks to God or glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. You know, I'm afraid that if we were honest with ourselves, very often we are like the nine who do not return to give thanks. In other words, what will happen is that we will go to the Lord in prayer and we will ask him for a a healing upon our relative, or we will ask him for mercies in a situation at work, or we will ask him for a certain blessing. And then as soon as we get that, we'll forget 
that he actually did that for us and we'll go about our business and we won't go back and give him thanks. No, we, we are to be grateful when we go to him in prayer, grateful for everything that he has done for us and who he is and what he intends to do for us. May we instead be like the one who returned to give thanks and uh, recognized the gratitude that we should have for him. And then fourthly, we are to approach the Lord fervently in prayer, fervently in prayer. Hannah, if you remember from the Old Testament in 1 Samuel, was a woman who was desperately wanting to be with child. And she was unable to. And she had prayed for a significant period of time wanting a child and uh, was not blessed with a child for quite some time. And then when she went to Jerusalem, it says that she went to the temple to pray. And while she was there, she was praying and she was praying with such fervency, such zeal that her mouth was moving, but words were not coming out of her mouth. And so Eli, who was the priest that was there, saw her and thought that she was drunk with wine and accused her of being drunk in the early morning hours. And she replies with this. She says, no, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. So the indication is here that she was. In such zealous prayer, in such fervency of spirit in her prayer that it was almost indistinguishable between her being incoherent and and being drunk. And so uh, this is how we are to pray with such fervency, with such energy, with such pleading with God. Now, after she had uh, prayed this and and, uh, through Eli, God had promised her. That she was going to bear a child, which, by the way, later on became um, Samuel. And in first Samuel, chapter two, verse one, she says, my heart rejoiced in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. So, again, she is pouring out her heart in fervent prayers before God. One of the best examples we have of earnest prayer is Elijah, according to James. And in James chapter 5, verse 16, it says, Confess your trespasses one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, this is a reference to 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 17, where Elijah was a man with nature like ours, it says, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, there's a couple of words, I think, here that are important to point out. First of all, it says that there was the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man. This is the, uh, in the Greek word, this is the, the Greek word energeo, which we get our English word energy from. In other words, this was not just a a mild prayer. This was an energetic prayer. It was a fervent prayer. It was a zealous prayer. It was a prayer that had some some meat to it, had some teeth to it. I mean, he was a man who was zealous in his prayer. He was fervent in his prayer. And it also says in uh, the verse 18, 
that he prayed earnestly. That is, he, he literally, it says he prayed with prayers. Now, in the Greek and the Hebrew, they have this unusual way of making an emphasis, and that is they actually repeat the word. Now, we would just, we would say very intently rather than intently, but they would say intently, intently, meaning that it's doubly intent. And so what we have here is that he was, he was not just praying, he was praying, praying. I mean, this is a, a fervent prayer, a zealous prayer. And I think it's interesting to note that there was nothing of significance to the wording in which he spoke. In fact, we have a record of some of the words that he spoke back in 1 Kings chapter 18, and they're not very significant. He says, hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you may turn that you have turned their hearts back to you again. So he didn't take this big, long, elaborate prayer. But what was special about his prayer? It was the intensity with which he prayed. It was the fervency with which he prayed. And then also in verse 41, we see him uh, praying uh, again. And the context of this event was, if you recall, it is where the prophets of Baal are called and summoned uh, to the mountain. And uh, he brings 400 prophets of Baal. And he makes a contest <coughs> between the prophets of Baal and God. And he calls on the prophets of Baal to call down upon their God to bring fire upon the altar. And, of course, they're not able to do it. And for half a day, it says that they are calling out to their God, trying to, trying to bring this fire upon this sacrifice, and they can't do it. And he's mocking them and making fun of them and saying, what's wrong with your God? Is he in the bathroom? And, I mean, all this kind of stuff. And he's just he's making all kinds of fun with them. And then it becomes his turn. And it says that at that point, what he does is he, he puts water all around the sacrifice. And he does this numerous times where it's just totally drenched. And then he calls down fire from God and it consumes the sacrifice like that. And he captures all the prophets of Baal. And of course, Ahab is there. <clears throat> Verse 41. Then Elijah says to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. So it hadn't rained in three and a half years. He says there's the abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. Then he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees. What's he doing? Well, I believe at that point he's praying. He's praying that God is going to bring the rain that he promised to bring. And indeed, he does. He says that his servant goes up and looks to see if there is rain coming. Doesn't. See any rain, comes back, tells Elijah, prays over again. He does this numerous times until finally he sees the cloud and he gets up and he goes after him. And we know the rest of the story is that it did rain after three and a half years after Elijah prayed. So what was significant about Elijah's prayer? Was it the content of his prayer? No, it was the fervency of with which he prayed. And that's why we see in James it being recorded that he was a man like ours, like us, with nature like ours. And yet he prayed fervently that it would not rain and did not rain. So how was your prayer time? Would it be described with the, the synonyms of a fervent prayer, such as devout, earnest, emotional, heartfelt, Im- <clears throat> impassioned, intense, passionate, sincere, vehement, zealous, animated, eager, Enthusiastic, wholehearted, 
Or is your prayer time more described by the antithesis? Apathetic, cold, dull, indifferent, insincere, unconcerned, unenthusiastic, unexcited, unpassionate, dispassionate, dispirited. If your prayers are more descriptive of the second list, then I pray that God would move your heart such that you might begin to pray heartily, that you might begin to pray fervently, zealously, as Elijah prayed. We have begun to look at the way in which we are to pray, more specifically the attitudes with which we are to pray, the character that characterize a prayer that is honoring before God. It's one thing to go through the motions of prayer. We can say all the right words, but what's our attitude like? You know, we can be robotic in prayer. We can pray the same thing, not even really know what we're praying about because we have a certain prayer memorized or a certain pattern memorized. That, that's, not, that's not the prayer that God delights in. God delights in a prayer that is um, come from a heart of honor, comes from a heart that wants to give him that kind of honor, come from a heart that is, that is humble and a heart that is grateful and a heart that is fervently zealous to see God's will done. Oh, God, I pray that you would help us to approach you respectfully and humbly and gratefully and passionately. And that you would put away from us anything that would make us approach you disrespectfully or pridefully or ungratefully or impassionately. Amen. And I think that it's time we start crying for our nation and bow our heads and pray. If today you lost your life, what would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy? One day we'll wither away And to this world we'll have to say goodbye But just like the plant that withers away We will leave many seeds behind If today you lost your life What would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy? If today you lost your life, what would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy? What will you do to change your legacy?